0: Thanks for being here. It's the last week of this series on Covenant Theology. Um, this is, I saved my last one. Uh, there, this is not, this is less me lecturing and, and me more engaging some of the questions that you, that have come up through this series. Um, so I don't have a, a nice uh, PowerPoint presentation or anything like that. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do a kind of a Q&A, but... It's a Q and A. I've already prepared uh, questions that have come to me throughout this, and and I think what's going to happen is, in answering those questions, it's going to give me an opportunity to kind of apply some of these uh, principles because because ultimately covenant theology is meant to be lived out and practiced in our life. It's not meant to just be a a cool systematized way of understanding scripture, and so that's that's what I want this to be. Um, So we're going to jump right in, and and there were were a lot of good discussion, a lot of good dialogue. I'm choosing the ones that were asked, not just probably the most common questions asked, but um, the ones that um, probably need a little bit more clarification um, about, uh, because if you'll remember in week one, I talked about, um, you've probably never had anybody sit down and um maybe you have but it doesn't happen in most churches where you sit down and talk about this is covenant theology this is dispensational theology and when we when i said that most churches in our day are dispensational in their theology um that's it's not like it's taught they don't they don't sit down and kind of systematically take you through the dispensations though some do but it's more caught it's more um It's just, it drips, this dispensational theology kind of drips down into our lives and implications. And there's a couple big ones that come out of that that people kept asking. And I totally understand these questions. And I'm just going to tell you up front. If you are, um, if you're older than, uh, I would say if you are older than 45, um, you're really not going to like a couple of my answers today. Okay, I'm just telling you. Because you grew up. Um, you grew up in a church evangelical culture that taught you, if I believe what I'm about to tell you I believe, um, like I'm a heretic. Okay, it gets that bad. Okay, so there, there is equate people in um, because dispensationalism was a wonderful response to uh, a liberal progressive movement in the church, it became associated with conservative theology. And so if you don't embrace some of these tenets of um, dispensationalism, you are kind of looked at as, um, as a crazy liberal guy. So um, I'm just saying that up front, just listen to me. Um, just know that historically, um, I got history on my side. Um, I'm not the only one who thinks these things. This is actually what the church has always thought, but it doesn't seem like that now. But if it, it, but if it frustrates you, especially when we get into the Israel stuff... Um, Just just let's let's keep the dialogue going. Okay, don't 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 get mad at me Um, I mean, you know get mad at me if you want, but uh, Anyway, let's go. All right So a a big question that came out of this is is what i've done in covenant theology is I have I start in genesis 315 and I really spent a long time uh, Mapping out genesis 315 um, All the way to the new covenant to jesus, right? And the second week, we kind of went through the story of uh, the, the, the covenant of grace. If you remember, the covenant of grace was the overarching thing that started in 315 and will end in the consummation. But inside of that covenant of grace, there are these successive covenants, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, covenants. And all of these find their fulfillment in the new covenant, which is what we looked at last week. So what we've done is we've done a lot of t- telling the story um, from a historical perspective, finding its fulfillment in the new covenant. But there's a lot of questions of, okay, well, what about the story going forward? Like, how does covenant theology play out? So less about looking at the scriptures and, um, and asking how does it all fit together in this wonderful story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus... Um, like like my sermon honestly is talking about this morning, and more about what do the scriptures tell us about how this story will continue to play out um, and so l- let me just let me just go there a little bit after the new covenant we 're obviously not done with the story right i mean we 're not, we're not in glory, not new heavens, new earth, so what 's going on now and and, and where 's it going, and how 's it going to play out and all these different things now the big question to that is um, somebody asked um, a couple people asked it after the first week. I think I heard you say that you, that you don't believe in the rapture. Is that true? And uh, yes, that is, that is true. Uh, the rapture is a, um, is the rapture going to happen? I can say to you, um, based upon the authority of scripture and the history of the church, no, you're not going to get caught up invisibly to heaven and leave your clothes behind. Um, it was invented about, it was invented in the late 1800s by dispensationalism, as an outworking of dispensationalism. Now, I talked about in the first week why it's become so popular. Um, the Schofield Bible and then the Left Behind series more recently are very dispensational, and, and it's all about the rapture and all that stuff. But, 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 but I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Do not be expecting the rapture. That's not where the world is heading, toward a rapture. Um, and, and I, I'm not just going to make that claim. I'm going I'm to read. Um, I'm just going to read the verse that is, that is where they, the uh, rapture theology began in the late 1800s. Um, and this is Matthew 24. This is the main verse. There really is no scriptural evidence for a rapture um, in the Bible. The closest you come to it is Matthew 24, um, verses 37 through 41. So let me read that and, and critique it a bit. Um, This is what Jesus says. He is talking about his return. Now, this is Matthew. If you remember, we spent forever in Mark 13. Do you remember that? In in the discourse um, where he's talking about his return and the coming judgment on Israel and all that stuff. After hearing this series, go back and listen to those Mark 13 sermons. Um, This is Matthew's version of Mark 13. This is uh, Matthew talking about um, the return of Jesus and the judgment on Israel and all this stuff. It's what he says in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One left. So you got this picture of these two people. And when Jesus comes, uh, one is going to be taken away and one will be left. Now, um, that's the main passage for the rapture. Um, They point to the Thessalonians passage where we will meet Jesus in the sky. That's not hard to to see really what's going on there. Um, So let me engage this for a second. I I don't think it will take me very hard to do that. Um, Please remember what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, as in the days of Noah... It will be like that for the coming of man. In those days, the flood everybody was eating and drinking, marrying and doing all their thing, and, and then the flood came and it took them away. Okay? And then he says, so, so it will be like that one day. Uh, one will be taken away, one will be left. You know, whatever. Okay, here's the problem with the rapture. Who do you want to be in that passage? Right? You want to be left behind? You don't want to be taken away. Those are the people that got consumed by the judgment of God in the flood. So... So the whole idea that we're going to be walking and some people will be taken away and others left behind, and it's really bad to be left behind because you're going to get all the judgment and stuff like that, actually the text is saying the exact opposite. Um, As in the days of Noah when the flood came and took them away, so also people will come and take away. It's it's talking about the turn of Jesus, the wheat and the tares, the division of it, the judgment will, will be, some will be taken away and some will be left here in the new heavens and the new earth. Left behind, where we want to be left behind, not swept away by the judgment of God. Um, so, ironically, the text is saying exactly the opposite of, of what dispensationalism um, te- says. But, but beyond the rapture theology is, is what I would call a rapture, um, a rapture culture that was created by dispensationalism. See see the way the the way the way if you view the future as we're heading to this rapture where where Christians will be taken away and the rest of the world will be left in judgment and the world's basically just going to go to hell and it's going to be a disaster and we got to get out of here. That's a, that's a wrong theology, but the way it has played out in the Christian subculture has been really really devastating. And the way it plays out is that the call of the Christian is to disengage from this world. That it's just, we got a final judgment coming, the rapture's coming, we got to save souls, let's save as many souls as we can, who cares about the world, let us soul win, so that when the rapture happens, everybody gets to get out of here and get spared the judgment. And it, it has this really simplistic understanding of Christian mission in the world, where it's just, let's save as many souls before the rapture happens. And God's judgment falls. And it and it and it leads to this Gnostic disengagement from the world. And it essentially creates this culture where the world's going to hell um, and and we just gotta save as many people off of it. Get raptured up. Um it's kind of like viewing the, the world as the Titanic. Um that's that's we it's it's struck, it's sinking down. Let's not worry about the furniture, let's not worry about cleaning this place up, let's not worry about Um, anything on the ship, let's just get as many people off this ship as possible. That's essentially how the evangelical church views the world for the past hundred years, and that's influenced by this rapture theology culture. And that is such a woefully shallow view of Christ's mission in this world. It also creates this us versus them mentality, like that we're in this big um, battle, um, um, very, very angry battle, and, and, um, and we've got to fight this, and, and the answer is to save as many souls. It's just, this, all I'm trying to say is this is, just not, this is just not the mission of God. This is not the way we're supposed to view the world. Um, this is not the, the culture that is fitting the people of God. And it's been that way for too long in the evangelical world, and, and it, honestly, it needs to change. And a lot of it comes to this dispensational view of the rapture. Um, and so then the, then the next question is, okay, well, how does covenant theology view the future? Um, three options here. I I won't go into much detail here because they all end the same. But if you remember last week, we had, I I said, fulfillment, new covenant fulfillment is marked by inauguration and consummation, that the fulfillment of Jesus is this age of inauguration and consummation. Now, this age, um, is heading towards Christ's rule and reign on the earth, like we, we, we're not raptured up out of here. Jesus is coming here. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign on earth. And we call that the what? The millennial reign of Revelation, right? So there are different views on how that's going to happen. Um, one view would be um, what's called um, pre-millennial. And there's a difference between pre-millennial and dispensational premillennial. Don't worry about the terms. It's okay. I'm just going to explain. And this, this is that um, right now... Basically, things are going to get really bad. Church is going to get raptured up in dispensational premillennial. But in historical premillennialism, things are going to get really bad. But Jesus is going to return and that will usher in the consummation, uh, the, the reign of Jesus. Okay. Uh, then there's postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is that, um, that, that things are going to progressively get better. Um, in the world, until all of the nations are subdued to the rule of Christ, and we will usher in the reign of Jesus. So the, the end goal, basically, the, the nations are going to be discipled and ruled and reigned according to the ways of God, and the end of that will be this consummation of all things. Okay? Then there is the happy medium, which I always love to fall in, the millennial view, which views the reign of Jesus as a spiritual reality that is at place right now that we are in the reign of Christ this is that that Jesus when he came he inaugurated that reign and that is a spiritual reality that is still at place and we are heading towards that becoming a physical reality which will happen when he returns and so in this midst we're going to see progress and struggle and progress and struggle and and there's a spiritual reality which are manifested um, at times in in the world and then there's defeats in the world and there's advancement of both good and evil and then it will all give way into the return of Jesus in the consummation and the new heavens, and the new earth. That's where I fall. Um, uh, a lot of people in our tradition um, that I respect are, are post-mill. Um, and then kind of the, um, the older generation in our, in our denomination are, would be more pre-mill. Um, and, and all three of them have great people who are great advocates of all three. Um, but the point is, is that we view the future as inauguration Consummation. How we end at consummation, there's differing opinions, but it is not, the world's going to be destroyed, there's going to be a rapture out of God's people, and then God's going to pick up the story from the Old Testament with judgment, and then Israel will be restored, and it's all about Israel. So that's how we view the future, clear, correct? Yeah, you can take pictures of that, or... Um, so... <laughs> Thank you, Pharaoh. Well, that one doesn't work. There we go. Can you see that, Farah? Okay. As long as you're taken care of. All right. So that's the big first one. How does how does covenant theology view the future? We do not believe in a rapture. We believe in, in its inauguration consummation concept, and how that plays out is is in different ways. Here's the second thing that that came out of. Hey, I don't have that. What do you have? Can I use that watch? Sure. Sure thank you i 'll get right back to you when I 'm done here. The other big question is um, is there's a lot of talk obviously in Israel uh, a lot of talk in the Old Testament about Israel and um, and 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 Jesus being the fulfillment of Israel and the promises and so there's a lot of people and this is probably the most the, the one that people wanted to hear the most was okay well, it sounds like you're saying um, that there's actually no more significance to the nation of Israel and to the ethnic Jews. Um, So, is the actual nation of Israel and ethnic Jews no longer of any importance, significance? Okay, this is where some people are going to get really mad at me, okay? I would say (laughs) no-ish. How's that? The reason I say ish is because in Romans, after Paul lays out his robust understanding that, 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 that the church has become the fulfillment of Israel. Remember, we talked about last week, I think it was, or two weeks ago, that in Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the children of Abraham, are not those who have the physical descendancy of Abraham, the circumcision of Abraham. The children of Abraham are those who have the what of Abraham? Faith. So I have the faith of Abraham, therefore I am a child of Abraham, therefore I am an inheritor of his promises given to Abraham. So that we become children of Abraham by faith and inheritors of the promises given to Abraham and all these different things. And Paul, I mean Romans 3, 4, uh, certainly 4, Abraham is justified by faith and we by faith. So Paul lays that out in Romans and then at the end of his argument, which culminates in the question that um, everybody wants to ask, well, what, what about the Jews? This whole story has been about the Jews. What, what about them, Paul? He first answers it with Romans 9, right, which is the, the famous text on the doctrine of election, where he says, hey, God can choose whoever he wants to choose. And then he explains the whole thing as this, um, he, he explains the whole thing as a, as a vine, Of God's promises. So you got, he he says that there's a vine of God's promises. He promises to save Abraham and his offspring. And there's this vine and there's these branches off the vine. And Paul said, does God not have the right to cut off a branch and graft one in? And then his point is that by faith we are grafted into these promises of Abraham. Okay? So we're a part of the line. But then there is this part right after Romans 9 and 10, I guess it's in 10, um, where he, he starts alluding a little bit to God's wisdom in all this. Is that um, essentially there will be the end of consummation, will be, there will be a revival among ethnic Israel where Jews will recognize that Gentiles are inheriting the promises they will recognize that Jesus actually is the Messiah and they will join us. They will join the story by faith, not by birthright. Outside of that concept, the New Testament's major thrust, and I'm talking, it's the big thrust of the New Testament, is trying to get people to understand that ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, has been abrogated with the coming of Jesus. That, that, that circumcision is of no longer value, that the ceremonial laws of Israel are of no longer value. I mean, this is the big obstacle of Acts. This is their struggle that culminated in Acts 15 where the apostle says, no, circumcision doesn't matter anymore, nor do any of the laws. And so what happened is, we talked about this in the law of Moses, there was the moral, uh, ceremonial, and civil laws of Israel. The moral laws are universal and true. The ceremonial Cleanliness laws, what you can eat, what you can't eat, um, things like that. That and the civil laws of this is the nation, and here are the laws of the nation that, that I want you to, to go by, that these, these two categories were fulfilled in Jesus, were abrogated is the language in Jesus, and so of course the moral law remains, but the ceremony and civil laws are no more. And what that means, when you take away the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel, is that Israel is no more. And in circumstances, no value. So, here's what I'm I'm trying to say. Israel is a great country because they are a democratic ally in a region of the world that desperately needs it. Um, It is a country that is an important place for an important time. But there is nothing divinely special about that nation. And that's really important to understand. They are not the center of this story anymore. The church is the center of the story now. It is all about God's promises to the nations. And spiritual Israel is the fulfillment of that promise, meaning Christians, being followers of Jesus. And the way you see this play out, going back to dispensationalism, the way you see this play out is when dispensational took over, and you're going to see some of this. when when Dispensational took over and put the nation of Israel as the center of all things. It's all about Israel. It's all about the story. We're just a parentheses. We're going to be raptured up and just going to take up the story. What happened when Israel became, the, the physical Israel, the nation of Israel, became the center of God's purposes and story in the world, I know how to spell Israel. What happened was, what happened was, This is gonna this is gonna give rise to the American you'll you'll see this. What happened in American Christianity is you got America here. And who is the protector in, in, in our world in our day? Who's the protector of Israel? Who's the supporter of Israel? Who's the friend of Israel? Who is the ally of Israel? Who who is who is America rightly, by the way, politically, I'm rightly important, in bed with? Well, it's Israel, of course. So now American Christians begin to start having this, without even articulating, they start making this connection. There is a divine calling to America. This nation has a divine calling to protect God's chosen people. And so political decisions, economic decisions everything are viewed through this dispensational lens of it's all about protecting that nation. America is the most powerful nation in the world. Our duty, our divinely appointed duty is to protect Israel. You start to see America get elevated up to this. That's what's happened. You start to see America, our culture, our nation, elevated up to this kind of level of divine appointment. As if America is more special than other nations and then patriotic passions, which are good and beautiful, get aligned with missiological passions, which are better and more important. And America in some ways becomes the new Israel. And listen, when you get into that, it gets really dangerous. Israel is not Israel. This is Israel. You are Israel. You are the children of Abraham. You are the ones who are inheriting those promises. You are the ones with the divine calling to fix the world. Israel is not Israel. America is not Israel. And why I say that is because so many people make the hermeneutic fallacy of placing America inserting them into the history of Israel and trying to make wrong connections. Here's here's what I mean. I I, I, I knew I'd need an illustration here. So somebody sent me this article this week. Is Donald Trump the modern-day Cyrus? Here we go. Listen, listen, listen. This is the logic. Ever since Donald Trump began to surge, this is the beginning of the era. Ever since Donald Trump began to surge as a as a candidate last year, Christians have been comparing Trump with the ancient Persian king Cyrus. Why? Some have even claimed that God has revealed to them that he will use Trump for the good of America just as he used Cyrus for the good of the Jewish people. And here's the connection. Cyrus was a pagan king, right? Not a, not a lover of Yahweh by any means, but he became king of Persia. Persia defeated the Babylonians who were oppressing Israel, and that gave way to the famous edict of Cyrus, where Cyrus let the Jews go free and restore their temple and their home. And so here's how the article says. Could Donald Trump then be a modern-day Cyrus? Could it be that Trump, like Cyrus, clearly does not know the Lord in any real personal way, but could still be used by God to accomplish his purposes? Okay, can you spot the hermeneutical flaw in this article? They are inserting America into the history of Israel. Right? They are taking America and saying... God treats America like Old Testament Israel and that that the promises and the way God is orchestrating history and all of these different things is for America. So he needs to raise up Osiris to save America. Okay, that connection is dangerous and wrong and it comes right out of dispensational theology. That's where it came from. The truer connection is that Old Testament is my story. That's your story. That's the church's story. That's our heritage. And when we look at the failures of Israel, the sins of Israel, the struggles of Israel, the persecution of Israel, the oppression of Israel, that is not apples to apples to America or the nation of Israel. It is apples to apples with us, with the church, with our struggles, our sins our failures. So when you look at the nation of Israel and its rebellion against the law of the Lord, you should not immediately say, look at this, look at that culture, they're falling the way of Israel. America's just like, no, no, no. look at you. Look at your heart. Look at your sense. Look at the state of the church, not the state of America. Now, if you want to start getting into warning America about its downfall and all this stuff, I'm fine with that as long as you warn the American church. I see a lot of patterns between Israel and what's going on in the American church. In a lot of ways, we're dying. I see all that. But it was never meant to be broadened out to a secular culture like America is. Israel has no divine right. America has no divine right. The church is Israel. Now, that is not replacement theology. So so dispensationalists, if you come from that vein, what you'll say is, so, so you believe in replacement theology. No, that term was invented to make this sound bad. We have replaced nothing. The church has not replaced Israel. Israel is the church. The church is Israel. This is fulfillment theology. This is who we are. This is who we already always were called to be. You read the Old Testament as an application for you individually and the church collectively. And so that's how it all plays out. I love Israel. Great country. Great ally. Important in our modern times for what they're doing. You know, don't don't take that. Where it doesn't need to go, but there is no divinely right to that. That all belongs to the church, to God's people. Um, mm. All right, I'm gonna do one more. I'm gonna skip one, and but, but it was the least. It's the least one that um, that I think needed to be talked to. So let's 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 instead of doing a, a critiquing of all this stuff, let's let's talk practically going forward some people said this is this is great theology this is high high lofty stuff what does that mean for me what is like what is what does covenant theology look like for me outside of i should baptize my children like that okay i got it that that that, that's that's the great application of covenant theology what 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 does it look like in my life um well i would say one thing Um, the bible comes alive and starts to make sense when you start viewing it through this and that's really important For your Bible to be read the way it was intended to be read, for the story to be comprehended the way it was intended to be comprehended, the Bible comes alive when you start to grasp this narrative of God's covenant. You see how it all fits together in this wonderfully intricate, beautiful story that culminates in, my sermon is so fitting for this morning, it culminates in the death of the Son of God. And that's what I would say. The Bible comes alive for us, and Jesus becomes really glorious. Um... We start to see him as the hero of this whole story. We start to see him as the answer to all of God's promises. We start to see that every single promise finds its yes in Jesus. We start to see Jesus in every single text of the Old Testament. You can't read a word of Scripture and not end in Jesus. That's the way the story is written. Jesus just becomes enormous and glorious and beautiful as he should be. If you chop it up, you don't see the way this all fits together. If you disconnect Jesus and his church from the whole thing, it's just, it's just a little phase that we're in, and rather than this enormous fulfillment of all things. So Jesus becomes glorious. But, but here's what I would say practically to you, and I'll end on this. What this means is that you are a part of a great story that is saving the world... And that story is so much bigger than you. It will, if you grasp this rightly, it will put to death the individualism that has plagued the church. Um, honestly, in this, if the goal is save my soul so I can escape judgment, world's going to hell. Save my soul so I can escape judgment, which has been the culture of the church for a while. If it gets bigger than that individual thing, it starts to see, whoa, it's a bigger story. There's a lot more going on, and hey, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than me. Um, it's not about me. I'm a part of a grand story that goes all the way back to Abraham, and that story is literally saving the world, fixing the world. It pushes back on our individual desires and needs for comfort. What if America, where if, what if America needs to collapse to push that story forward? You okay with that? What if you need to get sick? To push that story forward. You okay with that? What if your circumstances never get better? To push that story forward. Are you okay not letting Christianity be this individualistic thing that's all about me and what I want and my sins getting forgiven and me having a nice life with Jesus? Are you okay with it becoming about this big story where you are a tiny little small part of it being used? It's very empowering, but you're a tiny small part of this being used for a story that is far more greater than you, than a culture, than anything. Are you okay with that? Let us not be... See, here's where I'll apply Israel. Let us not be like Israel before us. Um, Israel made two flaws when it came to the story. So the promise was given to Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus. They viewed the promises this way. Two flaws. One, they either forsook the story and became like the nations around them. So you see that shameful history in Israel is they, they started worshiping Baal. They encountered the other nations and said, ah, let's try out your gods. And they forsook the Lord their God and became like the nations around them. That was one error they made. The second error that Israel made, and you see this like in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Gospels, is hoarding the promises of God and huddling up and despising the nations. It's all about us. We're going to protect our national heritage. We're going to protect what it means to be a Jew. You filthy, dirty Gentiles, stay away. We got our own story going on here and we're going to huddle up and protect. So there was either this accommodation to the world or there was this fortification of the world and God judged both of them severely. What God wants from his people is is to be a part of the story that is saving the world, not by becoming like the Lord, we will be a holy people who look different from the world, but not by retreating from the world, but by engaging the world with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh himself. We are living witnesses to his salvation, to his story, and you are actually saving the world. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing the calling is on you. And then you got to ask, what does that mean? It, 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 yes, it means missions. we got to, as a church, be a part of missions, going to the nations. But again, America is not Israel. We are the ends of the earth, people. We're the ends of the earth. And so what that means is the glory of Christ is good the bluegrass. My chapter, my story, right here, I am going to do my part in this to advance this story in this area where God has me. And in that way, God's people will, will save the world until Jesus comes back. It's that easy. So let's go after it. Let me pray. Lord, bless us as we go. I pray that we would see uh, ourselves with a great heritage, a great history that goes all the way back to Abraham and our father. It comes with many promises. It's promises we don't take lightly. We, we enjoy the promise of your salvation. We enjoy the inheritance that is ours, but Lord, we don't hoard those promises. We know that we also not only receive the blessing of Abraham, we receive the call of Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through his offsprings. And so now, here in our time, 2016, in this wonderful place that we love called America, help us to do our part, Lord, in advancing this story until all the nations Call you Lord and Savior. Hasten the day, Jesus. Hasten the day of consummation. Return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where we will, the story will end and will give way to a new story, an eternal story with you and all your people without this cursed fall forevermore. Come, Lord Jesus, we await. While we wait, help us to be faithful to our callings. In Jesus' name, amen.